0: Well, good morning, y'all. Good morning. Happy, Easter. Happy Easter. Christ is risen. Woo! Mm-hmm. Amen. You know, I uh, I don't think there is anybody that has been more loved, and yet at the same time more hated, or even to say misunderstood, than the person of Jesus. Many people will claim to have a belief in God or some type of superior being. But bring up the name of Jesus in a conversation, things start getting a little awkward. Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him. Artwork created of him books written about him than anyone who has ever lived on the face of this earth. And yet today, pop culture has taken the person of Jesus to a whole new level. Today we see Jesus making guest appearances on shows like The Simpsons or South Park. We have pictures of Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts on the likes of Madonna or Ashton Kutcher. And then there's a whole product line about Jesus out there of Jesus products. There's actually a Jesus piggy bank where on the front of that piggy bank, can you guess what it says? Jesus saves. Yeah. It's that bad. I even found online a Jesus soap on the rope. <laughs> For those of you who would like to physically wash your sins away. <laughs> Most of us grew up with pictures of Jesus hanging around somewhere in our homes. And so there's many of us who have this image of Jesus that is burned into our psyche. Jesus is all over the place, and yet, not in the right place. So today, we want to put Jesus back in the place where he belongs. Today, we want to create for you a picture of Jesus that is true. The picture of Jesus, of a man who had such love and compassion for a bunch of messed up people. That he did everything, and he gave everything. A man who fought for you. A man who sacrificed everything for you. A man who gave up his own life for you. So that one day, we could all rise up and live the life that he created us to live. Well, in an effort to uh, try to redefine our picture of Jesus, I um, want to read for you a passage that I think gets down to the heart of it all in a very simple way. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says this, but when the right time came, God sent his only son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could free those of us who were under the law and adopt us as his own children. It's not a stretch when you look at the ministry of Jesus to say that the one group that Jesus was in conflict with the most in his short time here on this earth, was a group in the religious right called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, by their very name, means separate ones, or the elite ones. And they were all about looking good on the outside, keeping the law perfectly, making sure everyone around them knew that they were better than everybody else, at least that's the way it looked in their own minds. The law that they followed so religiously is the law of Moses. Now, I'm sure you all know about the Ten Commandments. Maybe some of you watched Mr. Heston last night. The Ten Commandments is really the core of the law. But what you may not know is that there were actually 613 commandments that made up Jewish law during the time of Jesus. And these commandments all derived from the first five books of the Bible, which are considered to be the books of law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the Christian faith, we refer to those books as the Pentateuch. In the Jewish tradition, they refer to it as the Torah. This is the core of their teachings. This is the core of the Jewish belief system. Because from these five books came the 613 commandments that were to be followed to the letter of the law. So the Pharisees believed that they were the true holy people of Israel because they knew and kept the law better than anybody else out there. And they believed that the way that you entered the kingdom of God, the way that you entered heaven, was to keep these commandments perfectly. And so they dedicated their lives to doing and saying all the right things. The Pharisees were very concerned as well about their image. And because of that, they would never ever dream of associating with poor people or sick people or people down on their luck or people who were considered to be sinners or anybody that wasn't considered to be somebody by society. Let's just say the Pharisees wouldn't feel very comfortable here at Westridge. Way too many sinners up in here. So, the Pharisees were all about looking good on the outside when all the while, Jesus says their hearts were hard and cold and dark, and they wanted to make darn sure that the kingdom of God would remain an exclusive place where it could almost be like their own little private playground. So it was into this environment that Jesus was, as the Galatians passage says, born under the law. Meaning that religion in that day was off. It was all about the do's and don'ts. It had become about nothing more than keeping the law, keeping the rules, and it had nothing to do with what God wanted it to be about, which was to love God, to have a relationship with God. That got lost in the midst of all of these rules and regulations. And if the Pharisees were considered to be the gatekeepers of religion, and if the law was the lock on that gate, then it was only Jesus who could come to earth and break down that gate to make God accessible for the first time to everyone, to all people. So needless to say that there was a tension that mounted between Jesus and the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had their agenda that they wanted to protect, and Jesus was all about breaking it wide open so it could be an all-inclusive place and not just exclusive for the Pharisees. And this tension continued until the day they handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be killed. Jesus described him like this. Watch out for the teachers of the law, for they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets, but they pray on widows' money. They make lengthy prayers for a show. Such men will be punished most severely. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter that are out there trying to. So Jesus was bound and determined to wrestle the door of heaven away from these people, away from the Pharisees, and open heaven up for people like you and me. Jesus didn't much care about keeping up appearances or being seen with the right kind of people. In fact, Jesus hung out with people whose lives were pretty messy. Some of them were struggling with depression or alcohol addiction. The rest of them had all kinds of other sin going on, like thievery or prostitution. But none of it was pretty. And none of it was as good as the perception of who the Pharisees were and how good they were. On the outside, that is. And here's Jesus. He's just loving and embracing these People and acting like these messed up people matter to God. And so it was into this background that Jesus walks onto the scene and he begins to teach. There were thousands who were gathered there for his first big sermon to find out what this man had to say. Now, the interesting thing is, they were out in the middle of nowhere. And if you're a Jewish You're not going to go out into some remote region to go hear some newbie who's new to the religious scene speaking about God. You're going to go to the temple and listen to the priest. So you kind of get the impression that Jesus' teaching was something more like out of the age of Woodstock than it was out of the temple or something. Minus the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, of course. And so as Jesus gets ready to deliver his signature sermon on the mount to thousands of people, I envision that all of the most messed up people are sitting front and center and they're looking for some hope. And they're listening to and hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. Well, all the while, the Pharisees are off on the sidelines with their arms crossed, shaking their head, just waiting for Jesus to mess up. Just waiting for him to make just one mistake. And as the crowd hushes, Jesus sits down, and he looks into all the eyes of the messed up people, people just like you and me. And he begins to say these words. Blessed are the poor and the broken, for you shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those of you who have been beat down by this world. For you will be comforted. Blessed are the imperfect people and those who don't pretend to have it all together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, Jesus didn't teach religion. He taught hope. He taught love. He taught compassion. And for hundreds of years, the religious leaders taught that following God is all about looking good on the outside. It's about keeping the law. It's about the do's and don'ts of morality. They work so hard to keep us common folk out. But then Jesus shows up, and he blows the lid off of religion and says, it's not about them. It's about you. And it's not about what you do Your belief in God has nothing to do with religion at all. Jesus said it's not about what's on the outside. It's not about how good you look. It's not about how good you sound. It's not about how well you can quote the scriptures. It's about what's on the inside that matters. It's about your heart. You see, when Jesus says, come and follow me, he's not saying, come and be religious. He's saying, come and be in relationship with me. Come and give me your heart. Come and love me. And and so the religious elite, the Pharisees, are just glaring at Jesus because they can't believe what he's saying. How dare he say that these messed up people somehow are deserving of the love of God? No way. And just when they thought it couldn't get any worse, Jesus says something so incredibly radical in that day that nobody can believe those words just came out of his mouth. When Jesus looks over to the sidelines, he looks right at the Pharisees and he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I can imagine the shock wave that gets sent through the crowd because no one is perceived to be more righteous. No one is, cons- is perceived to be better than these Pharisees, and everybody knew it. So if the Pharisees ain't getting in, where does that leave me? It'd be kind of like when my kids would bring home a report card, and it's all A's and B's. And I look at them, and I say, Until your grades surpass that of the class valedictorian, you will not be congratulated. (laughs) I mean, the bar is getting really, really high here. And Jesus clears it up later, and he goes on, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside... You're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as being righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What Jesus is really saying is that unless you have something more than empty ritual, unless you have a heart for God, then you don't have faith at all. You're just being religious. In one fell swoop, Jesus sweeps away all the religiosity, all of the pride, everything that the Pharisees held on to so dear. And he steps back and says, Now, who among you still thinks you're all that? Because ain't nobody any better than anybody else. I don't care who you are, we are all in the same boat. Because Jesus goes ahead and defines what it takes for us to get into heaven. He says, you want to get into heaven? Then you have to be perfect. And even the Pharisees can't claim perfection. And by the way, if any of us among us believe ourselves to be perfect, that we can do this thing on our own, I got the name of a good therapist for you. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that none of us are capable of keeping the law perfectly, no matter how hard we try. And now that Jesus has redefined religion, the whole purpose of the law is not to actually keep us out of heaven, as the Pharisees would have you believe, but the law is actually something that keeps us on track. The law is something that keeps our lives going the way God would have us to live. The law is actually there so that we could be convicted of our sin, to understand what sin is. And by the way, it's there so that we can realize just how screwed up we really are, so that we can understand how much we need Jesus, how much we need His forgiveness. Because we can't do it on our own. And God knew we couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't live that perfect life. And so, from the Gospel of John, we get those beautiful words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on a cross. That whoever will believe in him, they will not perish But they will be given the keys to the doors of heaven. The day that Jesus died on that cross was the day that he made it possible for us to receive true forgiveness and for the first time meet the entrance requirement to get into heaven. That we can be perfect. The Bible says that when we receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that as far as the east is from the west, Jesus has removed our sin from us, leaving us what? Perfect. Sinless. And accepting the forgiveness of Jesus through authentic repentance is what we call grace. And the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith in giving our hearts to Jesus Christ. Jesus broke through the death grip that the law and the Pharisees had on us. He kicked down the door to heaven and opened it up and said, Y'all come in now. And that's why it says, But when the right time came, God sent his only son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could what? So that he could free those of us who were under the law. And now we get to the crux of the issue, now we get to the point of it all, because the last part says, and so he could adopt us as his own children. Jesus did everything he did. He took on the Pharisees, he broke the death grip of the law, he was nailed to a cross, he rose from the dead for just one reason. There was only one thing that kept him going in the end to take those last, final, painful steps to the cross. There was only one thing on his mind as he took his last breath and that was he did it all so that he could take a bunch of messed up sinners like you and me that he loves so much for whatever reason and he could adopt us as his own. That we could become children of God. I love the fact that it uses this idea of adoption in the Bible because adoption is something that means so much to me personally. I have two adopted sons that I love so deeply with all my heart. But with my youngest son, I remember taking the long flight to South America. And I remember on that flight thinking that when I land, my whole life is going to change. Like all of a sudden, this little baby is going to get thrown into my arms, and I'm going to be his daddy. And it freaked me out. (laughs) When they brought Jacob in, they brought him in straight from the orphanage. And he was dressed in these nasty... Lime green pajamas with holes all in them. He had dirt all over his face. Later found out that he had all kinds of medical problems as a result of being in the orphanage. I mean, this was one (laughs) messed up kid. But he was the most beautiful baby I'd ever seen in my life. There was no question about it. As soon as I touched him, As soon as I grabbed him up in my arms, I embraced him as if he had just been born to me. And he was my own. I spent the next two months trying to get him out of the country. And adoption became a political hot potato and nobody wanted to touch it. In the meantime, Jacob and I were holed up in a hotel room where I learned how to change diapers and warm bottles. It's an image that you're not going to want to have of me. But we were in this hotel room for several weeks, and every day that went by was another day that he grew into becoming my son. And after several weeks of being away from work and couldn't make any progress in the adoption process, I was faced with one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to face. I had to take him back to the orphanage. And I remember walking into this old, dark orphanage with all these yelling, screaming, crying babies and handing this child, my son, to this woman who didn't even know him. She didn't know how to make him giggle uncontrollably like I did. She didn't know how to make him smile. She didn't know how he liked to be held. She didn't know how much he loved papaya. I felt like you could have heard my heart break as I pulled away (laughs) to go to the airport. It was almost a month before I heard any news. And then late one night, I get the call. The judge had signed the necessary papers, and Jacob had legally become my son, though in my heart, he was my son a long time ago. I I took the next flight I could get down to Paraguay, and I'll never forget the moment that they brought him to me in the hotel. Because in my short time with Jacob, He was always a very responsive child. He knew exactly who I was. He knew my face. Every time he would look at me, he would have a big smile. We would always laugh together. He always had this incredibly deep belly laugh that he always did that cracked me up. And he was always just this bright-eyed and happy kid. But when they brought him to me after a month of not seeing him, it was like he had no idea who I was. He just had this blank stare on his face. He was real lethargic and unresponsive. He just looked so empty. And in that moment, I just lost it. I just started sobbing uncontrollably, and I thought to myself, what have I done? I should have figured out another way. I I shouldn't have left him. I, I, I should have been there for him. But then, as the tears were just streaming down my face, one of my tears hit Jacob's cheek. And it was like all of a sudden it just woke him up from a bad dream. And he looked at me and all of a sudden he was like, I know you. You came back for me. It was like all of a sudden he remembered, oh yeah, this is my dad. (laughs) And from that moment on, there has never ever been a question that this is my son. Jesus did everything he did to adopt us like that. So that we could become children of God. And we come to him orphaned and poor with nowhere else to go. We've tattered rags on our back. And we have the filth of sin on our face. And he looks down at us and he accepts us for who we are and not as we should be. And he loves us anyway. And he says, You are mine. You're mine. Every time we walk away from Him, we break His heart. But the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that was the day that He gave His children the power to rise up. To rise up and get out of the mess that we made of our lives. To rise up and to leave that old life behind. To rise up and To embrace the life that he has for us. To become the child of God that he created us to live. To rise up and to not be afraid. Because on that day, on this Easter day, we have the power to rise up and take the hand of the Father. Who will lead us right through the gates of heaven. Because of what Jesus did for us. Because he rose from the dead, we have the power to rise up and to walk right through And when that Pharisee raises his hand as I'm walking through the gates of heaven and says, well, don't you know who that is? That's Darren. Don't you know what he's done? He doesn't deserve to be here. And Jesus will look right at him and say, but he's forgiven. He's perfect. And he's mine. We'll just walk right on through.